You're listening to COSAM Talks, the monthly podcast for Auburn University's College of Sciences and Mathematics. Thank you for listening to COSAM Talks. My guest for this episode is Dr. Jeff Hill, a professor in biological sciences here in the College of Sciences and Math at Auburn University. It's a pleasure to have you here today, Jeff. Hey, Philip. It's, it's uh, nice to be here. Well, to start off with, um, since this is the first podcast I've done with you, uh, just tell me a little bit about yourself and how you ended up at Auburn. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm a professor in the Department of Biological Sciences. I think I'm in my 28th year, so it's getting to be ancient history how I got to, to Auburn. But uh, I followed the path that um, that a biologist would follow. I got my, my degrees. I uh, took a postdoctoral position actually in Canada. I got an international postdoc, about the least international experience you could have, go across the border to Canada. I uh, was in a lab in Canada for two years looking for a job, and Auburn advertised for an avian biologist. So it was really lucky. Um, you know, I didn't have my eye on Auburn as, as the place. I was looking all over, really wanted to stay in the U.S. I was looking all over the U.S., but it was really lucky because I've I've found a really nice home at Auburn. So, uh, but that it was the year I was looking for a job. Auburn was looking for my sort of biologist, and that's that's really how I ended up here. So you didn't have any ties to Auburn to begin with. No, I'd barely ever been in the state of Alabama. Okay. Uh, before I took the job here. Okay. But you've been here now for quite a while. Yes, long time. So during the time that you've been at Auburn, what? What have you come to enjoy about Auburn? Well, from the start, I I just love a little college town, and there's not that many left. Uh, That's true. Uh, university towns have grown up, like Gainesville, Florida, for just as one example, used to be a little college town, but it's it's a pretty big metro area now. Um, but Auburn still is a little college town, and it's it's a just a nice place to live, a, a nice lifestyle. I have a big, major, big time university set in a in a rural small town atmosphere. To me, that's that's just uh, a, a wonderful life. So I I'm an outdoor person. I like to get out and go fishing and bird watching, and um, you know you don't have to get on the expressway and fight through traffic to get to the outdoors here. It's right around you. Um, it's just a, a, a nice environment, a, a nice combination of big time university with everything a researcher would need, a uh, really nice little college town with fun restaurants and stuff and then um, a, a rural environment. And, and talking about the outdoors, I know around here we have Chiha, not Chiha. <laughs> around here we have Chihuahua <laughs> uh, State Park. Yeah. Um, but even, like I said, Chiha. Chiha's not that no, far I mean, away. So many nice things. Yeah. So, like for kayaking, I like to kayak. There's beautiful little rivers in every direction. Uh, you go south, and it, not a very long drive, and you're on the coastal plain, and you're you can be doing nice uh, saltwater fishing. Right. And go north, and you got you're at the edge of the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, it's just just a nice environment. I really enjoy it. A little bit about uh, what you've been doing here at Auburn. Uh, let's just transition into your research. Just tell me a little bit about your lab, and just in general the research that you do in your lab. Right. Well, since uh, I was in grad school, probably the the focal interest of my lab group, most of my students and, and, and me, is uh, trying to understand the evolution of colorful plumages in birds. So, so why have birds evolved bright? Mostly, I mostly study red feather coloration, 
in birds? And it seems like a pretty simple question and maybe a little esoteric, like why would we care about the feather coloration of birds? But I really have approached this from the beginning as it being a, a pretty substantial puzzle in biological sciences. It's not really obvious why red coloration would evolve in birds. And if we don't understand why a very conspicuous trait would evolve in, a, in one of the taxa that we look at the most birds, then we can't say that we really understand biological systems. And of course, that's the goal of science is to understand the natural world. Um, and so it's not, it's not just trying to understand bird coloration per se, it's really trying to understand how uh, biodiversity comes about, how evolution works and how evolution could give us, you know, a, a, a bright red bird. So that, this has really been the focus of my study uh, through my career. Okay. Yeah, that, that kind of answered my next question, I think. I was going to say, uh, what do you hope to come from your research? Uh, yeah, well, I think there's – so, yeah, we'd like to have fundamental discoveries in biology. So I guess it starts at the simple, actually answering the question we set out to answer, why do birds have red coloration? We actually haven't answered that uh, to in any kind of complete way yet. It's a, it turns out to be a, quite a complicated answer. But then – uh, from that investigation, we start to get little glimpses into how this could give us new insights into all sorts of things uh, related to environmental sciences and biomedicine and, and other things. It, this is the way science works. Um, if you try to understand basic principles of natural systems, it, often working in, in areas that seem very esoteric, very detached from uh, real world questions, uh, inevitably it, it provides this foundation of knowledge that we really make advances from. And a simple example would be Crick and Watson trying to figure out the genetic basis of heredity, you know, and uh, playing with their molecular models and coming up with the DNA structure. That was totally detached from biomedicine or anything at the time, right? It would have seemed very esoteric. And yet, it became the foundation of all modern medicine right. and, and really modern biology. So, um, yeah, so it, it's really worth pursuing these basic questions to understand natural systems. So you focus only on red coloration in birds and not, say, like blue coloration, uh, or is it all coloration? I'd say the core research has been on red coloration that's derived from carotenoids. Now, for years, we did work on blue coloration in eastern bluebirds, um, and I've done a little bit of work on melanin, the black coloration of birds, and we've and we're interested in like the the special pigments of parrots, but I, but the the focal interest and where we've really made some headway, I think, is in the red um, uh, coloration. Um, and in in through the years that we've been working on this in, in my lab at Auburn, we've really transitioned from mostly a behavioral lab trying to understand how these colors are perceived and responded to by the birds into more of a physiology lab doing a little bit of immunology and and uh, pigment physiology in the birds and now we've we've really become i'd say more of a genetics lab working on the genetic basis of coloration and in the latest grant i got i've got colleagues now we're doing cell culture we're doing cell biology um so trying we know where these pigments are produced in bird cells and now we can actually instead of working with the whole bird 
we can we can isolate the cells that yeah. have uh, that create the pigments and and really start to understand the mechanism that give rise to these pigments. So you said you haven't discovered why uh, why birds are red, but you have made some progress. Yeah. So we did. So years ago, I answered in my dissertation. I answered that question, if you in a way, because uh, I showed that female house finches respond to red coloration. So males that have bright red coloration gain access to mates. So that's potentially an answer. You say, why Why are house finches red and presumably other birds red? Because uh, it, it's, a, it's a sex, it's a stimulus during mate choice, and it allows uh, males to do better in, in, um, in attracting mates and, and uh, reproducing. But then, then, of course, one question leads to another. So right, that's an answer. Right. But, but then a, a really obvious next question is why would females pay attention to that? So why would that matter? And that's where we, that opens a big, that's the big question. Why would females? And so for years, we studied this to try to see if there was information encoded in the color. Like, could, could maybe females be uh, assessing the quality of males by looking at their coloration? And, and we have lots and lots of data that that's true that the, the males with redder uh, feather coloration are the better males in a population. So I can basically look at a male at a feeder and pretty much tell you if that's a, a high quality or low quality male. And, and meaning, is he gonna be a, have a good immune system? Is he gonna uh, have a low uh, um, you know, uh, s- s- signs of stress in his cell systems? Is, is he gonna be a good parent? Is he, and, you, and that's kind of crazy that you could just look at the color of a bird and know the quality of the bird. Right. And so that investigation took us into, well, the genetics of of color, we found the enzyme that's the key to producing red pigments, and it turns out that enzyme functions in the mitochondria. So one question leads to another, leads to another, and the reason the mitochondrial connection is significant is, of course, mitochondria is the center of energy production in in uh, uh, you know the bodies of of all animals, and and so uh, tying pigmentation to the energy production system perhaps provides an answer for how production of red coloration could be a general signal of of quality. If you have to have a good mitochondrial system to produce red pigments, then you just look at the color of a male and and you know a a really important fundamental characteristic of that male, how well he can produce energy. Well, that's really interesting. Like like you said, it's it's kind of crazy to think you you could get all that just from how bright their color right. is because in humans to determine if somebody is healthier than somebody else, you usually can't do that just based on look. No, we have clues, you know, when we, it's, it's a, we have a real a common language, you know, somebody has good color, you know, we, right, we talk about right. that kind of stuff. Well, that's, you know, that's a blood flow in your skin and stuff. So we definitely and have a spark on your eye or, you know, if you're sick, you hit you, your eyes are kind of, uh, you know, you're cloudy or you just, we, we assess each other for health state and, and, and things, but, uh, it's a little more complicated and, you know, for not just humans, but pretty much all animals that have long-term associations with complex interrelationships, you don't need those quick signals necessarily. I mean, humans get to know each other really well over long periods of time and do these long assessments. So do a lot of birds that, that, uh, hang out for months or years together, but finches pair up in a matter of days or weeks, so they may need this really quick signal. 
Right. Um, also, they may not have the cognitive capacity to sort of remember everything right. about everybody in the flock. So it's easier just to respond to a simple stimulus. So. I guess my, my example would have been better saying you, you can't necessarily tell if someone's healthier if they have blonde hair or brown no, hair. No, not yeah. by <laughs> Pelly's color. <laughs> yeah. Right. It has nothing to do with it. <laughs> so on a slightly different topic and uh, definitely more topical right now, um, back around 2005, uh, you were out hunting for the ivory bill woodpecker, and I remember back then. I think I think we probably did a video or two on this with yeah. you around that time. Yeah, with Doctor Schneller, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. he used to do podcasts when he was yeah, dean we of Cosam. Yeah, and uh, and he, there's a, a there's an archive podcast on that. <laughs> yeah, that was so that uh, started with a announcement by the Lab of Ornithology at Cornell and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that ivory bill woodpeckers had been rediscovered in Arkansas. So this is a big, uh, uh, flashy uh, uh, native bird to the southeastern U.S. that had disappeared in, uh, around the, the the early 1940s. So the last the last good documentation of the birds had been in the early 1940s, and there was a lot of. Uh, uh, sort of opinions that this bird had gone extinct because it had been uh, documented for so long. And then in 2004, uh, Cornell um, had an expedition in Arkansas and got a a video capture of a bird they said was an ivory bell woodpecker. And it it looked good to me, uh, too. So, and... uh, and so that was a big announcement. It was on the cover of the journal Science. and, um, And because of that announcement... Uh, I followed up on some old rumors I had heard of ivory bills in South Alabama and Geneva County and then south of that in the Florida Panhandle. And uh, some students and I went on a a weekend expedition, uh, this is in 2005, and found ivory bill woodpeckers. We we paddled right into a bird, uh, and I didn't see it that weekend. My, My student did, got a good look at it, and I heard sounds that... Uh, and I'm a good ear birder. I know the sounds of birds. And I heard a, a, a sound in that woods that I hadn't heard before that is characteristic of ivory bell woodpeckers. And so then that was 2005. For the next two years, um, with funding from COSAM and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and some just people were interested in back then, they, uh, we got some money. Uh, not not a huge amounts of money, but enough to, to uh, have little camps down in the woods, have grad students down there with video cameras. We we tried for two years to get good documentation of those birds, and we had many encounters. We we recorded lots of sounds that are consistent with ivory bill woodpeckers. Had visual sightings, and we got a, a a not very good video image of the birds. Uh, so when we published this in a journal, it was peer-reviewed journal, and I wrote a book based on it that was published by Oxford University Press. You know, one of the, if not the most uh, prestigious, one of the most prestigious academic presses. And uh, yeah, and then and and we were confident in what we had discovered, but you know, some people thought we hadn't documented it well enough. Some people thought we did, and that's pretty much where it lay. You know, uh, the Arkansas sighting was published in a top journal and had the stamp of approval by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and ours was 
I wouldn't say controversial. Some people thought it was just not enough, right. um, and and we thought it was, and that's you know that's fine. That's where it, that's where it was. Right. Even even though you saw the birds, out I there. saw the bird. Yeah, right, in a clear right. view in front of me. Right. Yeah. And I described since, that in the book. Since you didn't have a photo to show them, a clear right. photo. Of that's them. right. Like, still, uh, still an eyewitness account. Right, so right, yeah, right. yeah, mistakes are definitely made by uh, people who think they see stuff. I'm I'm very skilled at identifying birds in the field, so. Um, I did see that bird, but uh, nonetheless, uh, that's what we got back. Right, uh, that's right. now uh, uh, 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I remember, I think it was on the website you had at the time about the Iverville Woodpeckers hearing the, the sounds that you had gotten. Up yeah. Out, yeah. We had, uh, well, so at the time I had a postdoc, Dan Mennell, who's now full professor at uh, University of Windsor in Canada. And Dan was uh, one of the, I mean, he had trained himself to be an expert on animal recording. And he set up these automated sound recording systems down in the swamp and got a lot, like 150 uh, individual recordings that were consistent with ivory woodpeckers and, and, to my ear, weren't consistent with any other animal. Right. Um, so, yeah, and that's, that's uh, physical evidence. It's still, as a matter of fact, the link has been broken on the COSAM site. We should get that going again. People think <laughs> sure. we're hiding stuff. Right. It's just through <laughs> some web page swap, right, which we didn't right. But those data still exist, and they can. we'll put the link back up. Yeah, yeah. And anybody can go listen to those sounds and make your own decision about yeah, it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be sure we can get that up, and I'll put it down in the description below the podcast yeah, so people can right. go listen to them. Um, what what is it about uh, i don't think it's the ivory bill in general but why did the ivory bill become so difficult to find what what happened to uh, it oh they were shot uh, almost all of them so um this is something i've been given presentations on like to the conservation club at auburn and around to different clubs is and it's something i didn't i didn't fully realize so i started to investigate it a little bit but um the end of the 19th and the the beginning of the 20th century was an era of incredible wildlife carnage, just unbelievable destruction of natural resources. Uh, and we all kind of, I think we all know the story of the the, the buffalo, North American uh, buffalo that were just shot. There's literally pictures of, um, of mountains of buffalo skulls, uh, you know, 10 million buffalo skulls in a big pile. So that animal went from incredibly abundant to almost extinct uh, in decades. It was an incredible, uh, wasteful carnage. And the same thing happened to passenger pigeon shot to extinction, and but so many other animals. You know, um, white-tailed deer was shot to, uh, it was extirpated from Alabama. They had to be reintroduced. The, you know, deer, which is wow. such a common animal. Wild yeah. turkeys were extirpated. They were shot out of Alabama, had to be reintroduced. A uh, wood duck were, uh, came moderately close to going extinct to shooting. That's such a common duck. Uh, so many things. Uh, you know, we don't in the east. We don't have. Well, most of the bears are gone. We don't. Bears are barely in Alabama. They were shot out. There used to be wolves in Alabama. They're gone. Woodland bison are gone. Elk. We used to have elk. <laughs> They're wow. gone. So many things wow. are gone. And, and that ivory woodpecker was among those animals that was just shot. And uh, ivory woodpeckers were shot for food and as a novelty. But then. As they got rarer and and they became a prize in in natural history collections, and there used to be both private and public natural history collections, um, there was a bounty put on them. Uh, they were there was just and you can look in the back of ornithology journals from turn of the twentieth century. 
the price, the going price for an ivory bill woodpecker skin. And so there, people made their living not just collecting ivory bills, but collecting animals for museums. And these guys were good; they were very thorough. It was their livelihood to kill ivory bills, and they killed almost all of them. So anyway, ivory bills were shot, shot out. Ninety-nine point nine nine percent of ivory bills were shot. And the few that were left were very, very wary, careful birds. And they still are, as far as I can tell. So recently, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has declared the ivory bill extinct. And I I think they had done it once before. I don't think it was officially declared extinct before. There there was no Endangered Species Act. There was no official declaration before. But certainly... The community of, of ornithologists thought it was extinct twice before. Mm-hmm. So so they're saying it's extinct now. Uh, but I did see at least one article where, where you think that they may not be extinct. Well, yeah, everything we just talked about. I mean, I saw one in 2006. Um, and there's the same forest is still there. There's no reason to think that if those birds were flying around in 2006 that they've gone extinct since then. So, yeah, this was an official... Uh, well, it's actually, uh, I, I think it's a proposed declaration still, because there's still a comment period open where you can comment on the proposal to declare ivory bill woodpeckers extinct. But the fact that it's now moved to a formal proposal means there, it's, on the, it's on the cusp right. of being declared extinct. Now, what does that mean? You know, it's a bureaucratic move. So... It's literally a piece of paper moving from one file cabinet to another. So how much does that really matter? For some animals, that would matter a lot because the presumed existence of a species may be protecting habitat or, you know, but that's not the case of ivory bills. There's no habitat currently being protected just for ivory bill woodpeckers. Uh, Their habitat is still vast in in the south Um, and habitat that's being protected is being protected for other reasons so there's no it's they're not going to take a hit in terms of loss of habitat right um and so what does it really matter uh, maybe you know all it's done is draw more attention to right. the ivory woodpeckers where right. everybody had forgotten about them well i was going to say is this going to be the next hunt for bigfoot <laughs> well it already was back in 2005 i think what it does is it it gives everyone a free pass to go shoot one but and some people are worried about that. But you know, to be honest with you, I think you would have gotten a free pass shooting one anyway, because there's so. For one thing, it's 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 not on the Florida state list. It was considered extirpated by the uh, Florida Fish Freshwater Game and Fish. So I'm pretty sure you could have shot one in Florida without going to jail. Anyway, you know, to be prosecuted for shooting a rare animal that you may not even know exists. You know, I doubt you would get convicted because you could just plead ignorance. I thought right. I did. I never heard of ivory woodpecker. Don't didn't you guys say these things were extinct? You know, so and then we would have physical evidence, and then I guess something would be done. I'm not sure what. Uh, yeah. uh, but anyway, the, I don't really, except for getting a lot of people talking about ivory woodpeckers again. I don't know that declaring them extinct has any consequences whatsoever. I thought it was interesting too because I went and found. Uh, it was a different article I was looking at where they declared because it wasn't just ivory bill, yeah, like on this list of oh, species, yeah. but ivory bill was like top of the list. Well, that's a point that I so somebody made to me, and I hadn't thought of it, and it's an excellent point that um, most of the birds on that list, I think there were eleven birds, um, two were mainland 
North American birds, but nine were Pacific Island birds, mostly Hawaii. I think there was a Guam uh, bird on there. Uh, th- that's a whole different issue. Those, those, the existence of those birds would protect habitat. And those birds were uh, the victims of not 19th century gun blasts, but 20, 20th century and even 21st century development and overuse of resources on those islands. And so that should have been a major story in itself. The fact that we've lost so much biodiversity in Hawaii and on the other islands, and yet that was completely lost in in the Ivory Bill stampede. And that's really an old story. And like I said, this really, the Ivory Bill declaration of extinction, it's like, when you really think about it, who cares what what they say? But the, those island endemic birds really are extinct. Right. I mean, there is right. no place for them to be. There's not a continent to hide on. There's like a patch of woods on a hillside in Hawaii. Um, and yeah, that's a tragedy. Uh, and it's a truth. Those birds are extinct. Uh, Ivory Woodpecker is an opinion, and I, I think it's a bad opinion, but but really it doesn't matter. Right, right. It's like they're, they're, they're focusing on the wrong wrong thing exactly yeah yeah well it it was a pleasure to talk to you about all oh yeah thank you Um, so much for sitting down with me well thank you again for joining me and i just want to thank everyone else who listened 